Hello, everybody. I'm Ashley Matthews, priest and pastor at Christ the King. And this is the third episode of our Shaped by Scripture series we're doing throughout the month of October. We've been talking about the Bible for the last few weeks. And today we're going to re-engage the question which we first asked together on Sunday, which is, why? Why read the Bible? On Sunday, we looked together at the story in Matthew 22, when the Pharisees attempt to lure Jesus into a political debate about taxes. In response, Jesus demonstrates his ability somehow to both resist the temptation to provocation and conflict, and also simultaneously set an example for what I think is biblical wisdom at its finest. Jesus says, Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. It's brilliant, and it's a response that assumes a whole set of theological convictions, none of which have anything, of course, to do with taxes directly. The point we made on Sunday is that Jesus' way of seeing the world, God, and how everything fits together had been very intentionally shaped by the whole of Scripture, in this case, primarily Genesis 1, so that when it comes to answering a specific question about taxes, Jesus doesn't default to quoting a particular passage or commandment. Rather, his thinking on taxes has been shaped by a broader formation that includes the whole narrative arc of Scripture. It doesn't mean, of course, that he wouldn't quote Scripture or a particular passage. It just means that that wasn't the only way of addressing specific issues or answering specific questions. So in other words, the first or real question in Jesus' mind isn't, do we pay the taxes or not? But the first question is, how are we to think about these taxes and Caesar in light of who God is, in light of what Torah has to say? This is a brilliant example of biblical wisdom at work. It's the exercise of practical, real-life knowledge about God, which is not only intelligence, that's one thing. But rather, in the Bible, wisdom is the means by which God creates the world. Chokmah, in Hebrew, is the word for wisdom. Solomon, of course, being probably the most familiar example of biblical wisdom, he asks God for wisdom in order to govern as king. But chokmah is also the means by which craftsmen know how to do their skill, as in the case of Exodus 31, when the Spirit of God appoints skilled craftsmen, gifted with, the text says, wisdom for the crafting of the tabernacle. So whether it's making political decisions or solving relational conflicts, or carving pomegranates out of cedar. All of these require a skill for fitting things together. And in this moment, in Jesus' life, he was exercising wisdom with respect to how to fit together their contemporary cultural situation, this dilemma over the census tax, how to fit it together with and alongside their faith convictions shaped by the Torah. That's a dilemma which isn't directly addressed in the Bible. So when we're trying to address contemporary questions around issues like, oh, I don't know, gender dysphoria, our only recourse can't be simply to try to find specific passages or verses to answer the question. It isn't there. 
So are we then left just to our own devices? Do we default to popular opinion or the opinion of our particular political tribe to try to answer these questions for us? No. Because just because the Bible doesn't answer the question directly doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't have something to say. That's why we pray, we read, and we listen, and we ask God to gift us with the same wisdom that was available to Jesus and available to the tabernacle craftsmen, who, by the way, studied alongside other specialists in their field as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we listen and we pray and we study so that we might learn from the Holy Spirit how to fit together all of these disparate pieces that make up our real lived experiences on the one hand and the things we know to be true about God and his wise ordering of creation on the other. Colossians 1.17 says of Jesus, He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Hebrews says, He holds the universe together by the power of his word. These are theological claims, of course. But I think they're also a reminder that for the Christian, the word of God has a particular kind of power, which is at work in the universe, in the form of natural laws, in cells, in molecules, and in our relationships, in our wrestling with complex questions and social issues. So that's the first of two points. We read the Bible because we need and the world needs wisdom so that we can know how to live godly lives within the complexity of our current moment and how to draw people and experiences and information all together in a way that builds up, holds together. For my second point, I want to try to answer the question about why we read the Bible from a slightly different angle. And in some ways, this is a continuation of what Chris was talking about last week, which was hope. For the Christian, Jesus is ultimately, of course, the source of our hope, and we know him through the Bible. So one could simply and rightly say, we read the Bible because that's how we know Jesus, and Jesus is the source of our hope. And that would be an incredible answer, in my opinion. But I want to look at this idea of biblical hope from a slightly more literal or functional perspective. Because the only reason we have a Bible to read is because someone or someone's decided that we, the people of God, needed scripture to be written down and then compiled into a particular preservable form. Why? For centuries, The stories and commands of scripture were shared and transmitted orally, not written, not in a Bible. They were only ever heard read aloud in very specific communal gatherings, like in the temple or in the synagogue or later in the church. Literacy rates in the ancient world were around 5 to 15 percent. That's even up to the time of the popularizing of the printing press in the 16th and 17th centuries. Most people couldn't read, let alone have access to their own Bibles for their own personal quiet times. But that doesn't mean they valued Scripture less, or that they were less familiar, 
or that they were in any way less shaped by Scripture. In fact, the opposite is true. For ancient Israel, Torah-keeping and the worship of Yahweh were the markers of Jewish identity. They memorized it. They told the stories over and over until the characters were as familiar to them as members of their own families. And they didn't stop this practice or let go of these convictions, by the way, when they became Christians. But long before that, centuries before Jesus, when the unthinkable happened and Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586, the temple along with it, Jews were scattered and exiled into foreign nations. What held the people of Israel together? It wasn't land. It wasn't a king. It wasn't the temple. It was Torah. According to scholars, it was specifically the work of scribes sent to live in Babylon during the exile who began to write down these stories, many of which they knew, of course, by heart. Commandments, law codes, testimonies prophecies. They began to copy down and piece together existing bits of written passages in scripture that they had managed to keep with them in exile. They devoted their lives throughout the exile and beyond it, I believe under the direction and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to the preservation of these texts and these stories as a means of survival, not just for themselves, but for their people, for us. The Hebrew Bible in its earliest written form was created in response to a theological, political, communal, spiritual crisis. It was compiled, all those disparate pieces, into a preservable whole, I believe under the wisdom of God, by the wisdom of God, for the sake of building up his people, in impossibly complex times. So when we read Genesis 1, for example, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep. From the vantage point of a Jew living in exile, those words sound a particular kind of way. They mean a particular kind of thing. Because that person wonders if God has forgotten her forgotten his promises to her people. She isn't curious about how the world was literally made, or at least not primarily curious when she reads those words. She's thinking about her situation, formless and void, everything covered in darkness. That's her life. And then she hears somebody somewhere say, and a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And then she's suddenly reminded that what happened in creation can happen again. That the same God who built the world can rebuild her people. That he's with her in the darkness. He's over the waters. He's bringing light. We read the Bible now only because for thousands of years before we could read it, the words of God have been a source of hope and survival for his people. And Joel, I sometimes wonder if an enemy came 
and snatched all of our Bibles away, along with all of our phones, of course. Who would be the scribes among us? Would we find among our number enough of us who have hidden his word in our hearts? Surely there'd be a Baptist or two. Have mercy, Lord. Lead us in the way of wisdom. Shape us. Carve us, Lord, like pomegranates out of cedar into people of hope, Lord Jesus. Amen. God bless you all. We'll see you next time.